Hello and welcome to episode 48 of Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, from classics to obscurities, from Second World War films capturing the horror of war, to Second World War films capturing the reality of the home front, from Come and See to Dad's Army the movie. My name is Michael Brooks, I'm here with my co-hosts Bill King and Sam Oliver. Good morning, hello. Good morning, how is everyone feeling today? Ready to go? I'm just like, wait, are we talking 70s Dad Ar- Dad's Army or Catherine Zeta-Jones, Michael Gambon? Dad Army. Dad's Army. Dad Army. That's not a title. <laughs> Most definitely the 1970s version. Okay. Also, you well, said the realities of the home front. Do we know exactly how accurate Dad's Army the movie is to life as a home guard? Is I think it... very accurate. Yeah, the, the, they've said <sighs> okay, Dad's Army is probably one of the most um, accurate depictions of the Second World War ever made. <laughs> I heard it was cinema verite. It's so <laughs> accurate, you know. <laughs> ripped from the headlines of what they actually were doing in yeah, Wilmington on Sea. It's not pure. It's not pure fantasy. Like come and see. It's it's not like some ridiculous, jokey film like that. No, Dad's Army. That's is, exactly is that's harsh what life was reality like. Of war. Yeah. Well, that's good to know that Dad's Army is accurate. <laughs> yeah. This week we're talking about the World War Two drama Munich: The Edge of War, from director Christian Schwachow. Starring Jeremy Irons as British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. It's currently out in cinemas and streaming on Netflix. But let's start with some news. I've got a couple of items of news for you this week. So first up, why has Fight Club and China been in the news recently? Does anyone know? I I do know this. I read this earlier and it's... I mean, from my from my initial layman's perspective, it is quite a ludicrous thing. But I'm William, have you just, got any? I'm, uh, well, I'm, I don't like to wade in, as you know, into international diplomatic relations. So I'm going to um, stay out of this and um, just say I think China's leadership are doing the best job they possibly can. <laughs> wow, that was that is diplomatic. Doing the best they can. <laughs> Seems to be the argument that wins around it, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, Sam, yes, go on, reveal the answer. So, from what I understand, they have edited the end of the film Fight Club to have, let's say, a more pro pro capitalist <laughs> conclusion to Fight Club. I mean, which is odd just in itself, isn't it, really? I mean, surely they'd want to keep the original Destroy Capitalism ending. I don't know what... Anyway. So what happens now? Yeah, Yeah, so... Yeah, you're right. So it was reported that uh, a Chinese version of David Fincher's 1999 film has been released for streaming in China, uh, but with the ending cut. So instead of, you know, the big sort of anti-capitalist spectacular ending, uh, they add a caption that says that the police uncover the plot in time, arrest them all, Tyler Durden sent to a lunatic asylum. So there you go. <laughs> wow. But with, with you know, with all these things, uh, it's there's a bit more nuance, a bit more depth to it. Uh, it's not simply a uh, sort of let's laugh at China story. So uh, after this uh, came out, then the book's author, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, was quoted as saying, so, well, everyone gets a happy ending in China. Yeah, great. Um, but pointing out that actually it does make the ending much more akin to the book's ending. So it was Fincher that added the big spectacular ending. And actually in the book, uh, in, you know, the, the end, it ends with the, it does end with the plot being foiled and with Tyler Durden being sent to a lunatic asylum. So, you know, there you okay. go. Okay. 
So the Chinese authorities have actually made a more accurate adaptation of, of the Fight Club book. <laughs> it would so, appear so. Yeah. Turns out that the Chinese authorities are actually real stands of Chuck Palahniuk. That's I like that. That's why so, they did it. I think I think we need to see Chinese versions of, of more like classic um, book adaptations. Like they could they could rescue um, Stephen King's The Shining from Kubrick's meddling. Like let's let's get a more accurate version of that. Jaws, you know, let's let's put back in all the weirdness that's in that one. I mean, I'm so excited about Chinese Lord of the Rings. <laughs> get some Tom Bombadil back in. Yes, the, please. The... The annoying thing is, though, is that you won't actually get new scenes. You'll just get a, a title card that will come up and say, at this point in the film, Tom Bombadil turns up and does a really long song about going off to find something, so, I guess. So basically, I'm just reading The Lord of the Rings on a massive cinema screen. <laughs> yeah, you, you may as well. Chinese. <laughs> Chinese. <laughs> I need, yeah, I need, I need John Cena to translate it <laughs> from, from Mandarin into English for me. I think that'd be a really nice seven hours. Me sat in a cinema with John Cena. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Just whispering the lines in your ears. What this might mean, though, is that every time you go and see a film that you you really like and are familiar with the book and you're really annoyed that they then add all this extra embellishments, uh, you can just think, well, I'll just wait for the Chinese version. Absolutely. Where they do it faithfully. Yeah, yeah they'll thank, sort you out. Thank you. Thank you, China. Uh, in other news, then, so... Uh, I don't know whether you saw this. The BAFTA nominations were released a few days ago, uh, trying to restore their credibility after the Noel Clark fiasco of last year. But what film uh, leads the nominations? Do either of you know? I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark at the film uh, The Ice Road, starring Liam Neeson. <laughs> Up for best British musical drama. <laughs> yeah. Turns out we were we were way off base with that one. We were I think, not. I think Liam Neeson's. I think Liam Neeson's up for best newcomer, isn't he? Like... <laughs> um, no, is it is it our um, our boy June? It is, yeah, yeah. June, which we covered a few episodes ago, back in October, I think it was, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, leads the way with eleven nominations. The Power of the Dog, which Bill you talked about a couple of episodes ago, has eight nominations, and then Kenneth Branagh's Belfast has six nominations, which we haven't seen yet. So uh, yeah, there you go. What do we think about June getting is it, getting the top? Yeah, is it is it is it just technical awards or is there like acting, directing gongs in there? Uh, no, it's I I think it is. It's definitely best film. I'm not sure about acting though. But are they joking? I mean, Stellan yeah. Skarsgård was like under that black goo for like ages. That's good acting. <laughs> Maybe there's too many people in June to like narrow it down because like <laughs> Timothy Chalamet is the lead but he just looks confused for two and a half hours yeah. so you can't really pin a gun on him you know i think that massive worm should get a get a recognition oh yeah yeah we're talking about the david lynch june yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so i've just looked it up so no no acting gongs uh, no, no it doesn't look like director either so yes it's best film and then mostly technical awards um, notable omission, uh, I was interested to see, uh, nothing for Spencer. Uh, Kristen Stewart also overlooked Best Actress, so they must have been must have been listening to our podcast and definitely took a side. I had, I had, I had no idea, Mitch, that you were on the BAFTA uh, panel. I didn't know. I didn't know that You've you were. You've got so much pull over the... at BAFTA, Mitch. It's, it's really upsetting. 
Yeah, he was just he was just there in the meeting screaming <laughs> June, June, when they were like, "What's that?" No, one more for June. One more for June. Give it another one, boys. <laughs> that worm was way better than Stuart. <laughs> I do find it genuinely crazy that she's not been at least nominated for like best actress. You know. That is crazy. It's it's a travesty. I once again will not be watching the BAFTAs. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about uh, this week's film, Munich, The Edge of War, the new historical drama from Christian Sukawa. From previous work includes German films, including West and Paula, and he's also credited with a few episodes of season three of The Crown. And this is adapted from a novel by Robert Harris, no stranger to having his work filmed either. Uh, such as uh, the Roman Polensky films An Officer and a Spy and The Ghostwriter. Whether they've made Chinese versions of that that are more similar to his novel, I don't know. Um, don't know. Any Chinese listeners, do let us know. Um, so this film centres around two friends from Oxford University, Hugh, played by George Mackay, and Paul, a German student, played by Yanis Neuwohner, who in the early 1930s, their friendship breaks down, they have a falling out over the new Germany that is being created by its uh, new Führer, Adolf Hitler. And six years later, as Europe stands at the edge of war, Hugh is now working in Downing Street as the secretary to Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, played by Jeremy Irons, who is striving to obtain peace uh, with a now mobilising and threatening uh, Hitler. Uh, meanwhile, Paul is working as a government translator in Berlin, but is also secretly plotting with others to overthrow Hitler and avert war. And so the centre of the drama unfolds around Chamberlain and Hitler's historic meeting in Munich in 1938, where efforts are made by both Hugh and Paul to smuggle classified Nazi documents and bring them to Chamberlain's attention. Uh, and the film then, you know, there's no spoilers, but the, uh, the film ends with the infamous Munich Agreement and Chamberlain's Peace for Our Time Declaration. No spoilers about the how <laughs> history. Oh, there might be a big war. Yeah, for, the, for those of you that haven't heard of World War Two, maybe go and learn about World War Two <laughs> and then come back and listen to this episode. Oh shit! Yeah. There was a sequel to World War One. What? what? <laughs> yeah, the third instalment is uh, in the brewing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I wonder if the Ukrainian government will uh, allow it to be accurate to the book. <laughs> uh, so this is currently out in cinemas at the time of recording and also streaming on Netflix. So Sam, you start us off. What did you think of Munich, The Edge of War? I mean, for, for a start, that is a a very mouthy title, isn't it? Munich, The Edge of War. It's just, it's a lot going on. And also, I did enjoy that it does that um, thing of, at some point during the film, um, Paul von Hartmann very nearly says the title when he talks about how they're on the edge. And I was like, say it, say it. <laughs> But he didn't say the edge of war. He just said the edge, like he was talking about you too. Oh. Um, so if only <laughs> we're not talking about sing two. Like... No, that's next. One. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Let me just change my check my notes. Yep. Sorry, I've written all about sing two. I'm afraid. Um, so, I mean, for a start, after his great performance in 1917, is there anyone right now? as good as George Mackay is at looking concerned during the war. Like <laughs> he's got that lockdown. I feel like this he's got that. I mean if there's a if there was a BAFTA Academy Award for looking concerned during wartime, George Mackay would have it absolutely wrapped up. Absolutely wrapped up. Um so I think overall, Munich, the edge of war, I feel like is a really 
fine middle of the road movie. Like I neither neither loved it nor hated it. I just found it very kind of fine. Really, like yeah, that's that's okay. I'm not not dying about it. I think, and I've been trying since watching it to try and like pin down exactly why I feel so apathetic about it. And I think one of the big issues I have with it is that, as we joked about at the start, the whole kind of tension rests on this idea of like, will Neville Chamberlain be able to get Hitler to not make World War Two happen? And obviously, you're watching the whole movie being like, I'll. I don't think this is going to be some revisionist Quentin Tarantino-esque retelling of the Munich conference. So you kind of feel like, well, I know at the end of this film, there will be a World War II. And unfortunately, as lovely as Neville Chamberlain seems, as as nice as he does appear, he's not going to be able to stop World War II happening. So the central tension just wasn't there for me, which for a film like this that is ostensibly a kind of wartime thriller there was just absolutely zero tension for me they do obviously do a good job at kind of like trying to create that tension with this classified nazi document that they're trying to smuggle to chamberlain then trying to smuggle back to the uk but it just never really fully grabbed me and i think for a film that has as its kind of like central hook this idea of like a thriller element or a kind of like you know this thing that's trying to like pull you in and make and create the tension it has never really fully got me never really fully grabbed me um that being said i think everyone in it's really really good i think it's it looks good it sounds good it creates a really it feels like a very true to what the situation was like during the munich conference it it, it looks very good you can see that kind of like credentials of the director in like recreating that world um I know it seems like a very kind of odd thing to say, but I really enjoyed and I really appreciated that all the German bits are in German. I think it would have been quite easy for a film like this to go, oh, well, we'll put all the German stuff in English, but they'll just have German accents, you know, like they'll just be going, you know, make it more palatable. But I really enjoyed that they were very true and very authentic to kind of like, they're going to be speaking in German, so we're going to have that subtitle. That was really nice. Um, But yeah, Generally speaking, it just was really fine. Very, very middle of the road. Um, I also felt like a lot of the characters, they did very cursory cursory looks into what their motivations were. Like, you had that... Re- like, there was that one scene of Neville Chamberlain walking around the Rose Garden where he was like, oh, I'd stand against that wall and be shot if it stopped war. And you're like, cool. I, yeah, no one wants war, Neville. That's, that's fine. You know, that... <laughs> <laughs> I, that, yeah, I don't think that's you know, that's not new. That's not new new information there. I don't know. Churchill did. Oh uh, yeah, to be fair, actually, <laughs> I think I think Hitler might have as well. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it all back. Actually, that was all the motivation anyone needed. Um, but yeah, there's just all there was those. There was like a couple of cursory scenes where they laid out the kind of characters' intentions and the characters' motivations, and then you were then. And it kind of relied on the enormity of your own knowledge of World War Two to kind of like then fill in the gaps of like, and obviously this would be a terrible thing. So this is why he wants this to happen. And I feel like there was a lot of, I would have quite liked that to be interrogated a little bit more. I think I really, I was quite interested in the idea of, because Neville Chamberlain is very much the kind of, we all have a certain opinion of like, oh, he's the guy that was like rubbish because 
he was not good at being a wartime prime minister. So then we got rid of him and got Churchill in. And I kind of wanted more of an exploration of his character um, that for me wasn't really there, um, which is a shame really, because I think Jeremy Irons did a great job of having a moustache and being old. So yeah, I think it's a completely fine movie. It does the job. It does what it does in the tin. But I can't say that I was particularly kind of enamoured with it. It just... It happened, and I am neither better or worse for having seen it. It happened, and I'm keeping I wasn't on the edge of my seat. There we go. That's my, there we oh, go. nice. Very nice. nice. Very good. Um, yeah, I, so I'll, I'll go next. I think, I think I largely agree with you. I mean, I, I think the first thing to say is that I'm often very wary. I mean, we were just talking about sort of revisionist, uh, you know, revisionism of films i think i'm often very wary of historical revisionism especially where it isn't particularly well signposted and flagged that this you know, that it, that this is taking sort of great great liberties with with what actually happened and i think this film certainly it's not it's not clearly marked as such and i think it should be really and i think you know it is it's important to say that this is a fictional story about these two friends conspiring with one another set amidst true events I mean, from what I can tell, I've had a little look at the background, but I think Robert Harris, the novelist, based the character of Paul von Hartmann on a real figure who was involved in a plot against Hitler and did indeed have a friend that he knew from Oxford University, but they were never in any way <clears throat> they were never in any way involved with the Munich Agreement. And I find this very frustrating because, like as with so much of these things, fact is much more interesting than fiction, and I think the subject matter is so electrifying and so fascinating in and of itself. It doesn't need these fictional embellishments. I mean, you just look at a film that Bill, I think you you spoke about on our disturbing episodes podcast, Conspiracy. You know, ruthlessly true to the factual events to the point where I think it actually used actual transcripts and is completely riveting for it. It doesn't need all of this uh, this kind of extra uh, fictional embellishments. It's completely unnecessary. And I do feel actually, I mean, that this might you know, I do feel that you know, Netflix. I don't think is conducive to the kind of browsing nature, the way that people sort of flick from one thing to another on Netflix, I think it should have some sort of disclaimer, you know, to the casual user. It's like, this is, what you're watching is not an accurate, although it's portraying, it is kind of ostensibly a sort of historical film. It's not, you know, it is not historical, historically accurate. That said, I mean, I did look, I also looked up afterwards. So the film was actually shot in the conference building that where the talks did take place, which is quite nice. It does add a level of kudos to the film in that regard um i don't think as you said sam i think this is a very prosaic film there isn't very much going for it it's very sunday night drama you could definitely tell i think that the director had that background with the crown um i can't really say that i i can't really say that i was bored but it just wasn't engage. it wasn't engaging enough it was nowhere near engaging enough i think that's you nailed it there about the, the fact that the, the tension just was not there but i think mainly the reason why i wasn't bored was because it contains, I think, some of the very worst examples of espionage and sleuthing I've ever seen on a film. I mean, laughably bad. So there's this long section where Paul and Hugh pretend not to know one another in the conference reception, despite it being quite obvious that they do. They then follow one another elaborately to a, a beer hall where they then proceed to have a loud and tense conversation about overthrowing Hitler with what looks like an SS guard sat on the same table from them. I mean, and there's, there, are, there are numerous scenes of them 
getting in and out of one another's car and generally making absolutely no effort to avoid being seen together. I just thought it was completely implausible. I just, it really, absolutely ridiculous. I actually thought the acting left a lot to be desired as well. I thought George Mackay, I, mean, I think, you know, he, he was obviously impressive in 1917. And I just, yeah, I mean, so like, he just, like you say, he looked constantly startled in this film. I just thought, you know, he just had very little other uh, sort of dimension, dimensionality to his character. You know, and we know nothing about him other than that he went to Oxford and he has a wife who nags at him. You know, that's basically all we know about him. I thought the portrayal of Hitler was unforgivably weak. I thought the actor looked nothing like him. It was far too old, far too thin, had nowhere near the gravitas. And unfortunately, it took me completely out of the drama. You know, I mean, it's obviously very, very, very difficult with such a, a notorious villain, you know. To, but there have been some very good portrayals. I mean, Bruno Gantz from Downfall, obviously, is like top of the pile but and there's been others that have been less good but i think this is definitely one of the worst portrayals of hitler that i've, that I've seen i also thought the script was often far too obvious really on the nose at times i mean sam you mentioned it and one of the great examples of that is in the downstreet gardens and you know saying he'd sooner be shot against the wall than send soldiers off to war i mean yeah it's just glaringly obvious and the bit about where they're you know, to try and sort of emphasize how bad Hitler is, then start making jokes about his vegetarianism and things like that. It's like kind of like, like 101, like what you know about Hitler sort of thing. I mean, and also at the end, as he's giving his, Chamberlain's giving his peace for our time speech, and Hugh looks up at, at the sky, and you guessed it, those storm clouds brewing overhead. <laughs> I just. <laughs> I, I, I forgot about that bit. That is ridiculously like. Yeah. I just like the end of Terminator, wasn't it? That is ridiculous. Like, what's, what metaphor can we use here? Ah, storm clouds. It's just uh, so lazy, isn't it? I mean, the last thing I'll say is that I, I also watched an interview. I can't remember where it was. But it was a while ago, an interview with Robert Harris and Jeremy Irons, where they said that the part of the intention of the film was to try in some small way, rescue Chamberlain from this kind of the historical baggage of the kind of weak appeaser who epically misjudged Hitler's uh, intentions. And I think in that sense, the film completely fails in that it invents this scenario where Hugh and Paul present him with this Nazi document proving Hitler's real imperial intentions for Europe, and yet he still goes ahead with the agreement. So, like, it's this really weird decision that they've made because by inserting this false detail, they totally changed Jim Chamberlain from someone who, like, sympathetically you could say was striving for peace but miscalculated and misjudged the other side to someone who was actually in, in full possession of the facts but went ahead regardless. That makes that makes the decision that he made completely different and his act and you know is that if anything is even more damning so i think yeah it's just a distinctly average film with some truly baffling decisions having been made along the way um yeah bill what do you think yeah so well i, I basically completely agree with you too so i won't i won't rehash the points you guys have made um but i'll, I'll go through some positives and a couple of things i disagree with um, so Mitch, you talk about like, um, you thought it, showed, it failed and like kind of giving a new perspective on Chamberlain kind of made it worse. I didn't, I didn't get that. Cause yeah, he's often, you know, in history he's seen as the fool, you know, the, the political sort of cuckold figure, but this, this was a different view. Cause I, I, they were trying to show him as like this, this master, like chess game player, because he, he, he did the speech towards the end that, this was this plan of appeasement was eventually going to bring America into the war and that, and it, it showed him like as this 
heroic figure sort of like a batman sort of figure that was just going to take all the the blame and the and the uh, insults through history and he was like well it's a small price to pay so yeah it was it didn't really work for me but it was interesting it was a different spin on a a you know a figure that's 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 derided so uh, you know that, i think that was that was commendable they tried to show him in a, in a different light um i thought it was it was well shot um, I, I really like the production design, and you know, you saying that it was it was filmed in the the actual hotel. That's that's good kudos, and I do I, I did think it had a great sense of place. But yeah, it was it was very Sunday afternoon. It it did often feel like maybe just an extended episode of The Crown. I kept expecting you know Olivia Coleman to to appear at some point. Um, I found the fictional spy story just. I thought it was pointless. I, I, you know, it didn't happen. Um, so I, I just found it a distraction. I, I would have, like you said, if they'd spent more time in the actual conference and and dealt with the the games being played there and and um, the the moves being made, that that was that was more engrossing. I did I did find the scenes with you know the the big historical figures and the diplomats, um, yeah, quite interesting. Um, I think. Jeremy Irons was a good Chamberlain. I I forgot he was Jeremy Irons, which is I guess important. Um, and you know he's often a very big figure as Jeremy Irons, but now I I, I kind of lost lost him in the performance. So so that was good. Um, I, I've got to give special praise for um uh, uh, Janice Niwona who played um the the German diplomat. I thought I thought it was a really super intense performance. I thought the script obviously was lacking, but I, I really liked his energy. Um, it it kind of clicked. Like he was almost he was you know he went from fanatic to you know fanatically opposed, and it it was kind of nice how he kept this thorough line of always being sort of um, incredibly intense and on the edge, no matter which side he was on. And and I like that. I found that I found that interesting. Um, I also think he's got a great face for film. Um, excellent angular cheekbones and i'd like to see more of them i also disagree on the portrayal of hitler um <clears throat> i thought ulrich mathers um yeah i thought i thought his portrayal was pretty terrifying to be honest i it, you know it was probably one of the scariest portrayals of hitler I've, I've seen like it actually did scare me at times like he had these mean evil looking eyes and a voice that seemed to come from the caverns of hell yeah but it's not it's not hitler though is it no i i know i know that but it Hitler's such a big figure. I think sometimes in film, there's a conscious choice to like kind of portray different sides to him. And you know, if you're if you're going to portray someone in history and try and get them to look exactly the same and sound exactly the same, especially a figure like Hitler that's become more of just like almost become like this sort of mythical figure. This this was an interesting slant into to, to show a different side to him. And yeah, even though <clears throat> physically he didn't look like him and he didn't especially sound like him, I thought it was an interesting slant and it did, it, I, I did find it um, quite effective that it was showing like, obviously this was a very charismatic, quite frightening bully and and that's what came across through his portrayal um, in it. And I, yeah, I, I disagree. I did, I did find it, um, yeah, quite effective to be honest. Um, also, I've got got no. He played Goebbels in Downfall. Yeah, um, much better at him. He was great to get. Yeah, he's really making his way through Nazi high command. <laughs> he needs to. Uh, he needs to put some more weight on before he plays like Goering or Himmler. But oh. you know, yeah, I think he can. I think he can do it. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Basically, I think, I think it was um, 
pointless putting the spy story and I'd rather it was just a straight adaptation of of what went down in the conference but yeah it was it was a nice diversion and yeah Sunday Sunday afternoon film um for me well there we go I think that's quite unanimous three sort of wavering thumbs down I think isn't it (laughs) it really lost you on the title screen sorry Munich (laughs) the edge of war but and then for the next hour and a half, you just couldn't get past that. Just that title is so bad. I really, I can't get, I can't get over it. <laughs> right, I don't think we need to talk about this any further. It does doesn't justify it. So let's move on. Um, that's uh, it, that is, it's currently streaming on in, on Netflix. It's also should still be out in cinemas somewhere. What else have we been watching this week, Sam? Do you want to let us know what have you been watching? Yes, so. Well, I'm going to be talking about um, a film by Kelly Reichardt, who um, directed First Cow, that we talked about um, a couple of episodes ago. And it's a film of hers from 2008 called Wendy and Lucy. All fair, fair worn up front is a pretty devastating movie. Um, I was kind of prepared going in, you know, when you kind of get yourself mentally prepared for like, I feel like this is going to be a pretty tough watch, but I wasn't quite prepared for how devastated I felt by it. Um, so, Wendy and Lucy. Um, it's about um, Wendy, who is played by the wonderful Michelle Williams, and Lucy, who is, Michael, you'll love this, um, a dog, played by Lucy the dog. And it's just a really beautifully simple kind of story about um, Wendy, who is um, a, like a penniless drifter, kind of similar kind of character to... Um, Frances McDormand in Nomadland. Um, and she's basically like trying, her ultimate goal is to travel to Alaska where she's searching for work. Um, and the only companion she has along the way is her dog, Lucy. So she's kind of right as soon as you meet her as a character, she's kind of like on the very, on that knife edge of like trying to just kind of like live day to day and kind of like try to get by. Pinching pennies, making kind of like every every penny count and trying to get work where she can get it and just desperately hold everything together um, and then she hits a big old bump in the road when like her car breaks down and then she gets um, arrested for shoplifting and at that point her lovely dog Lucy goes missing and then she's just trying to track down Lucy so I mean it's really not a lovely time at all but Michelle Williams performance is incredible you kind of follow her very much like she's in she is the the heart and soul of the film um, and her performance is absolutely amazing. You can she does so much by doing so little. There's incredible scenes of just her like talking to a security guard or talking to like the car repair guy that she's dealing with, and in just like a flicker of the eye or a quick kind of like look to the left, she can convey so much. It's a really incredible, commanding performance. It like like a lot of the scenes in. Um, first cow that we talked about like the cinematography is incredible in it kelly, uh, kelly reichardt just really knows how to kind of like find the beauty in a lot of like very mundane and quite kind of like there's one scene just set in a parking lot of a big like store but it looks beautiful and it looks it's really well put together um so yeah it's it's a really really like great performance and a really really great film but it is quite a tough watch as well um so that's wendy and lucy um I, oh yeah, I rented this from Cinema Paradiso, but I assume it's going to be available on your various streaming platforms. Um, and yeah, it's just if you if you enjoyed First Cow, I think it's well 
well worth checking out. Very nice. Is it the same sort of... Because First Care was very ponderous, wasn't it? It was a very slow-paced film. Is it the same, similar sort of tempo? Similar kind of vibe. Um, there's a lot of just... Um, yeah, those kind of like ponderous shots of... There's a lot of Michelle Williams' character walking around just humming to herself, which, I mean, I love. I'm very much there for. Um, but yeah, it's a very similar kind of like speed and vibe to it. Um, it does sound yeah. like a cross between Nomadland and Pig, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, actually. If you like Nomadland, if you like Pig, here's the film for you. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to continue the sort of devastating tone. <laughs> um, I watched uh, the 2011 psychological drama We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lynn Ramsey. Previous work includes Morven Caller and You Were Never Really Here. Uh, it's based on a novel by Lionel Barber. It's a very gripping, really rather disturbing film that that can't not stay with you, I don't think. Uh, it stars Tilda Swinton as Eva, who lives alone in a rundown house in a neighbourhood where everyone seems to despise her and and does not shy away from showing it. Um, she's basically being violently shunned by the community. Um, and the film alternates between this present day situation and several years earlier so it follows Eva giving birth to a son Kevin played in his later teenage years by uh, Ezra Miller the film documents their antagonistic relationship and so nothing Eva seems to do can can reach Kevin he's detached manipulative and resentful of his mother he rather makes Damien from the omen seem like an angel (laughs) Um, but all the while there is this sort of spectre of something awful that has happened that bridges these two narratives i mean spoiler alert if you don't want to know anything about the film but that's something awful is that he's kevin has gone on some kind of a school killing spree and so we're kind of aware of this in the film quite from quite early on so it's not a big spoiler we're aware of it from in a from quite early on in this kind of vague way but what the film does really well is it sort of slowly but surely brings into focus what happened um, until by the time the full horror of what he's done is revealed, you're you're kind of well prepared for it, but it still hits you very powerfully. And Tilda Swinton is excellent as Eva. Yeah, she's such a conflicting character. You know, she both elicits the sympathy, but at the same time is you know is not undeserving of, of blame as well. John C. Riley plays the father. This he's kind of a peripheral character, really, but it, but his sort of cheerful ignorance of what Kevin is really like only serves to heighten the tension between Kevin and Eva. And there's the you know these great philosophical and moral arguments working away at the heart of the film. It's, there's the age-old nature nurture question, you know, whether Kevin is truly malevolent in a in an irredeemable sense, or if there's you know, there was the opportunity to at some point save him. Um. It also explores the nature of love, maternal love, um, but through a very nihilistic and dark lens. So it's a real puzzle of a film. I mean, yeah, you know, I said at the top, it's kind of a psychological drama, but there are elements that are quite horrifying and, and do lean on on horror. Um, and it, uh, yeah, it, it will leave an imprint on you. It does explore these tough and uncomfortable questions around parenting and children. So that's uh, yeah, we need to we need to talk about Kevin, and I watched that. And that's uh, streaming on Netflix. Hell of an ending, isn't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one of those films that I've, I've, I saw. I think when it came out in the cinema, and I keep meaning to rewatch it, but I also don't think I can. I can rewatch yeah. it. <laughs> it's one of those. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. Yeah, I occasionally see it come up. I'm like, can I face that? No, no. Nah. Let's give it another year. 
Yeah. <laughs> Kick that can further down the road. It's it's a good yeah, it's a very, very good film, but it's not light. It ain't no, light. No, no. <laughs> Bill, have you got nothing to lighten us lighten the episode? Yeah, well so 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 mine's um also devastating, oh. but for a very different way. So I need to provide some context and um uh, an excuse really um, for why this happened so I was away um, with work this week and um, I wasn't in any like wi-fi range so um, I was I was forced to watch terrestrial tv um, and um, flicked onto Sony great movies and uh, watched a film called um, Submerged which was um, out in 2005 um, directed by Anthony Hickok and it stars Steven Seagal, um, Gorman from Aliens, uh, Little John from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Vinnie Jones from Leeds United. Um, so, so the, the plot, as far as I could tell, um, there was this, this this nasty man who's got some sort of brainwashing injection that when he injects people, it turns them into terrorists, and I think they're going to like attack the the US. So the government releases a mercenary that's Stephen Seagal out of prison, along with a load of British ex-SAS soldiers for some reason to take him down. Um, so it, it's it's um, it's it's shit. Um, <laughs> really, it's never a good sign. It's never a good sign when you're running through a synopsis and you say the words "they're doing this for some reason." That's never never a positive sign. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why. I don't know why it's called Submerged. Because, like, well, they're on a submarine for, like, ten minutes out of the film, so maybe that's why, but there's no other reason for it to be called Submerged. That's a big that's a big problem. <laughs> um, Steven Seagal is drenched in Just For Men um, hair dye, um, and, and he can barely move. He's, he's drenched so much and he can barely move. He's also, he's constantly shot in shadows, so like he's always in darkness with one streak of light um cutting across his eyes and it doesn't matter where he is like at, at one scene he's he's on this bright sunlit day on a uruguayan street in the middle of this carnival and yet he's still in shadows um i assume it was because he was so horrifically out of shape that he demanded that <laughs> um but most egregiously he tries to do a um, creole like new orleans accent and can't um every time he opened his mouth I just started screaming, stop it, stop it. It was, it's, it's, that was really bad. Um, and uh, around halfway through the film, the action moves to Uruguay because of plot. I can't, I can't remember why, but for some reason they decide to saturate the color grading to like vomit yellow. Um, so the whole film looks, the entire thing looks like a high vis jacket, you know, towards the end, I had to actually switch it off because it was it was actually giving me a headache. Um, I didn't actually see the end because it was so, so painful for my eyes to watch. I'm sure your TV wasn't broken? No, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. I'm pretty sure. But when I flicked over to um, Celebs Go Dating, that looked fine. Um, I did some reading afterwards and um, Uruguay actually sued the film, presumably for being shit. Um, and, and fair enough, I'd happily give evidence in that civil trial. Um, yeah, submerged. It was, uh, it was, it, it was terrible. Probably, probably one of the worst evenings of my life. Um, so yeah, catch that on Sony great movies, submerged 2005. Shite. It sounds as though there's also a legal case to be had with 
the TV channel calling themselves Sony Great Movies when they're showing things that ostensibly aren't great movies. Yeah, you know? that is buyer beware. No, that <laughs> was definitely not a great movie. <laughs> I did a little quick search for it. It was went to DVD only release. Didn't even get a theater release. That that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> How's Vinnie Jones in it? Um, he's he's pretty bad. He's pretty bad. Um, at one point, there's like this riot going on, and he turns to Stephen Seagal and he's like, "Go, this is just like an English soccer game." And Stephen Seagal <laughs> goes, "I ain't never been to an English soccer game," and so that was that was odd. How much must Vinnie Jones have been, been paid to say English <laughs> soccer game? <laughs> oh. You know what? I don't think it'll have been a lot. I don't think they're hardly <laughs> smashing down his door for work, are they? So. <laughs> oh well, Christ! I mean, that, so there's literally it's not even a case of this is so bad. It's no, no, no. It's, it's not. It's bad. not. No, when a film is actually burning your retinas, like it's actually painful to watch physically. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't even recommend it to be so bad. It's good. It's not. It's just not good. <laughs> Oh, well, there we go. What a way to end. Um, yeah. Sorry, God, it's, I am sorry. It's been two two poor films and two quite devastating films. So there you go. Oh, no, mine was the most devastating, I'd say. Like, it right. was a devastating so it's been a, tri- a triple bill of <laughs> devastating movies. <laughs> very different reasons. Well, thank you very much indeed for listening. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks' time. With we'll be talking about Guillermo del Toro's neo-noir thriller Nightmare Alley, starring Bradley Cooper. Uh, so check back in with us uh, to hear our thoughts on that. Shortly after that, uh, we'll bring you what will be our 50th episode, so we're planning something special for that uh, as well. So yeah, thanks very much indeed for listening. Bye Bill, bye Sam. Thank you, as always, to everyone, especially us. That's a very odd way of saying bye. Bye! That was a really weird ending. Yeah, bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. If you like what you heard, it'd mean the world to us if you told someone about the show. Tell them about it even if you hated it. Or even if you just felt really apathetic about it. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad press. If you can leave us a review on wherever you're listening, that'd be amazing. And don't forget, we're on all of the social media things. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Bebo, MSN Messenger. And that's at Creaky Chair Pod on Instagram and at Creaky Chair on Twitter. And if you search Creaky Chair Film Podcast on Facebook, you'll find us there too. You can even email us at creakychairfilmpodcast at gmail.com if you want to send us your essay about how much we were well out of order with the ice road.